Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. I've been looking forward to uh, this opportunity for over a year now since uh, uh, Raymond first reached out and asked um, me to come. And then the first time I was supposed to come, I ended up with COVID, so I wasn't able to, to come. And you guys graciously rescheduled, so I was, I was glad for that. Uh, in the bulletin, it says that I'm going to be in uh, 1 Kings 18. That's not the case. I'm in John chapter 1. Uh, I think that was a part of the transition of uh, switching some folks around. So I asked Raymond this morning, should I do 1 Kings 18 extemporaneously? And he said, why don't you just go with what you prepared for? I said, that's, fi- that's fine with me. Um, I do bring you greetings from Southeastern Seminary just outside of Raleigh, North Carolina, in a community called Wake Forest. Uh, it's the community where Wake Forest College was established before it moved to Winston-Salem in the 1950s. And uh, we have a wonderful community there uh, that's training men and women to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. And so it's a real delight to be there. It's a delight to represent uh, 47,000 Southern Baptist churches uh, in that assignment as well. And so just really glad to be here. So encouraged by the people I've had a chance to meet. I'm encouraged by your worship and your prayers and uh, by the intentionality for the impact that you're making on this City and I, and I look forward to being with you tonight as well. So uh, this, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 1, uh, picking up in verse 19, going to read through verse 36. So if you have your Bibles and open it, follow along with me, that would be, that would be great. I'm reading out of the Christian Standard uh, Version. I'm um, sort of a hybrid. I just, whatever I pick up and bring, so that's what I have. Raymond said you guys normally use the ESV, but it should be close enough and you can follow along. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 19. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? He didn't deny it, but he confessed, I am not the Messiah. What then, they asked, Are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Just as Isaiah and the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John answered them, and someone stands among you who you do not know, and he is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. And all this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Here. Is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he exists before me. I do not know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Jerusalem. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and rested on him, and I did not know him, but He who sent me to baptize with water told me, The one you see, the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John standing with two of his disciples, and when Jesus was passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word, and we ask for you to be with us as we gather around it in this moment. Father, that you would help us to hear your voice by the empowerment of your spirit, and that we would respond to your voice in faith, and we would respond in your voice in obedience. 
In this text, we know that you are making yourself known to us through your Son. And in this text, we know that there is a calling for us to participate in the making known of you through the proclamation of your Son. Would you speak today as we gather around your word? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We don't know what we can't see. It's sort of an obvious observation. We see all sorts of things, and we see actually in all sorts of ways. I mean, the, the literal way that we see is with our eyes. We see physically. But we also see through perceptions, through senses. We, we hear, we become aware, we taste, we touch, we smell. Scriptures tell us that we spiritually see, though, with our ears. This is the biblical pattern. We see what we hear. This is why um, the Apostle Paul, in the beginning of his letter to the, book of, uh, to, the, to the church in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, in his prayer, he prays this. I pray that the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God would be yours, and that the eyes of your hearts might be enlightened. This is the biblical pattern. This is why John Calvin says that the most important organ for the Christian is their ears. Calvin argues this really refers to the necessity of closing our eyes when we need to come to recourse to God and not approach him except through the mediation of his voice. The voice of God, of course. Metaphysically prior in the scriptures, to the face of God. Because we know from Moses that it was the face of God, it was the presence of God that Moses wasn't able to be in presence of, but he was able to hear the voice of God. Think of the burning bush. Think of when he asked to be in God's presence, and God said, you can't withstand it. But he said, you can hear my voice. The reason for this is the centrality of revelation for us to know God. God has spoken so that we might know him. And here's the incredible thing. It's not only when we speak and we hear him, that we see him, that we know him with our ears. This really summarizes the purpose of the Gospel of John. At the end of the, the Gospel, if you've got your Bibles and you can find it quickly, flip back over to John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, and I'll read for you the purpose of this Gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, and they're not written in this book. Jesus says there's all sorts of things. John says there's all sorts of things that Jesus did. They're not contained in this Gospel. They're not written here. But the things that are written, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The Gospel of John sort of is bookend from this statement of its purpose with a prologue that's richly theological. The first 18 verses of the Gospel of John sort of set the tone, if you will, for the entirety of the Gospel. It's a theological prologue calling us to understand who this one is that John will be witnessing to throughout the entirety of the Gospel. In this prologue, we see that Jesus is the eternal and the divine Son. He is the agent of creation. All things come into existence, Paul's words in Colossians chapter 1. All things come into existence by him. He is the one by whom we become children of God. He is the light. He is the way. He's both the illumination of the path and he is the path itself. He is the manifestation of the grace and the truth of God and his loving kindness and his faithfulness to his people. He himself is the manifestation of that. When the prophets say that God will be 
faithful to his covenantal promises to his people from generations to generations. When Jesus comes, it is the fulfillment of that promise. He has been faithful. And at the end of this theologically rich prologue, we see that Jesus is the only one who has seen the Father. And he has come to make the Father known. So after this introduction, we have the first story in the gospel. And in that story, we come to know John the baptizer, the forerunner, the one who points, the herald, the one who says, I've come to make way. We've had this quick meet and greet. If we read through the prologue, we had a little meet and greet with John the baptizer in verses 6 and 7. And that's just to say that one's coming, I'm not him. But here we have a little extended exposition and interaction with John. And verse 19 picks up where verses 6 and 8 leave off. This gospel's first story is about this, the Jewish leaders questioning John. And they receive a clear response. But it's not the one they were looking for. In advance of the message of John's gospel, Jesus comes to us to reveal the Son, to reveal God to us in his mission, and he also reveals himself. In advance of the message of John's gospel, those who know him have life. This is the glorious truth of the gospel, that Jesus comes to reveal the Father, and in the course of revealing the Father, he reveals himself and those who know him have life in him. His coming, his advent, are so that we can know God, and in knowing him, we may have life. I want to make three observations from our text today. The first observation is this. God's mission is for the Son to be revealed. God's mission is for the Son to be revealed. The second observation I want to make this morning is, it is God who reveals God. And the third thing I want to observe today is that it is Jesus who is to be revealed and not us. God's mission is to reveal the Son. God reveals God. And it's Jesus who is to be revealed and not us. This, this story... Um, the Bible, it's sort of this, this message, God's mission is for the Son to be revealed, is really the central story of the Scriptures. It's the message of John's Gospel. It is what I want you to hear today so that you can see it. Look with me in, again in verse 19. This was John's testimony that the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites ask him, who are you? These priests and these Levites are clueless in this passage. There's all sorts of things they don't know, and this is one of the purposes of the text, is to tell us who and what they don't know. They're, they're, not, very, um, they're not, not very nuanced about it. They're not very savvy about it. They're kind of bumbling about it. You know, what they really probably should have done is they should have shown up like you show up to the airport when you're waiting for somebody and you don't know their face. But you know you're supposed to pick them up and just stand over to the side with a, with a, with a sign that says, Messiah. <laughs> right? Or you know how the, you know, the really cool Uber drivers are? They just roll up to the curb, they roll their window down and say, Key? <laughs> you know, they, they could have been a little bit more nuanced. They could have been a little bit more savvy, but they're not. They don't know. So verse 19 says, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? The reality, though, is that when they say, are you Elijah or are you the prophet, they don't know who these men are either. The more they talk, the more they reveal, they don't know who they're looking for. And they don't know what they're talking about. If they had known, they would know Elijah from Malachi 5, 4, 5. is the prophet who's going to come in the great and dreadful day of the day of the Lord. Or they would have known that the prophet is the figure that Moses writes about in Deuteronomy 18. This prophet who comes knowing the law of the Lord, who upholds righteousness and establishes righteousness for the people of God. 
They would have known these things, but they didn't. But the crucial issue here is that not that they don't know who John is. The crucial issue here is not that they don't know who Elijah is or who one of the prophets is. The crucial issue is they don't know who the Messiah is. And John knows it. And he gets right to it. John is not the only one that they don't know. He's not even the most important one that he doesn't know. And he discerns that they don't know who is the most important. Look at me in verse 20. And they ask, who are you? He didn't deny it. He just cut right to the chase. I'm not the Messiah. I know who you're looking for. And it's not me. It's not me. And his response, they're in their response, then why do you baptize if you're not the Messiah? Verse 25. Or Elijah or the prophet. And John says, I baptize with water. But among you stands one who you do not know. In this dialogue, so they're figuring, trying to figure out who he is, trying to figure out if he's one of the prophets or Elijah. Ultimately, they're looking for the Messiah. John understands it. He says, I am not the Messiah. They come back and say, but what's all this business that you're doing out here in the wilderness then? And he says, I'm here to baptize. But he says, there's one standing among you, which had to be shocking, right? Because they're trying to figure out who are who he is, and trying to discover where the Messiah is. And he says, there's one standing among you that you do not know. When I read this text, I think of passages at the end of of Luke chapter 2. It's actually one of my favorite passages in the Gospels. I, I read it, and I just have this question. If I was there, what would I have known? What kind of perception would I have had? Would I have been spiritually alert and attuned? And I'm thinking about the passage when Joseph and Mary bring the eight-day-year-old boy into the temple. And you have Simeon and Anna there. These two saints who have been doing their service in the temple year after year, holding on to the promise of God that their days would not end until they see the Messiah. And they see it. They see him in this eight-day-year-old boy. And I think, how did they know? It's Simeon who says, My eyes have seen your salvation in the presence of this little infant boy. And John tells the religious leaders here, he says, Yep, there's one standing among you, the one you're looking for, you don't know him. The truth is, this one who's not known isn't intended to be remain unknown, and that is good news for all of us. Perhaps there's someone that walked into the room today, and you don't know him. He's not intending to be remain hidden from you. He came so that you might know him. He has come to reveal the Father and to reveal himself so that you might have life in him. He's not come to remain unknown. Look with me in John chapter 1, verse 31. I don't know him, but I came baptizing with water. Why, John? So that he might be revealed to Israel. All of God's work from the beginning of time has been unto this climactic moment in human history when the Son would be revealed so that the Son would reveal the Father and that the people of God might know the triune God and may have life in Him. And the transforming presence of God may be with God's people and we may be conformed into the image of His Son. Whose hidden was not to remain hidden, but He was to be revealed. I think of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This one, this seed is going to come to crush the head of the serpent. Yes, that's obscure, but it's not intended to remain obscure. I think of of Genesis chapter 49, this one who's going to come in the line of Judah, who's going to have the scepter for all eternity. Yes, that kingly image is obscure, but it's not intended to remain obscure. 
I think of Deuteronomy 17. This one who's going to know the law. Who's going to delight in the law. Who's going to maintain the law. Who's going to fulfill the law. It's going to reign righteously over the people of God so that they too may fulfill the law. Yes, obscure, but it's not intended to remain obscure. I think it's 2 Samuel 7, when David goes to God and says, Hey, I got a great idea. I've been thinking, I've been casting a little vision. I think I can get some materials together and I can build you a house. And God says, Uh uh. You sit this one out. I got a better plan. I'm going to build you a house. And there's going to be one who sits, who builds that house, and he sits on the throne for all eternity. Yes, obscure, but not intended to remain obscure. Or I think of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who's crushed for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and by his stripes we are healed. Yes, obscure, but not intended to remain obscure. God is not playing some sort of cosmic hide-and-go-seek with the Messiah. He is, in the unfolding of time, according to His purposes, seeking to reveal His Son at the right time so that you and I may know Him and make Him known. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. When the fullness of time comes, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoptions of sons. He's fulfilling his mission in time and according to his time. Or I think of John chapter 3, verse 16. It's a very famous passage. We could all cite it probably. For God so loved the world in this way. That he sent, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have life and have it eternally. God, in the unfolding of his plan and the revelation of his son, he's fulfilling his way in powerful ways. And he's accomplishing his purposes in decisive ways. John chapter 1 verse 12 and 13 tells us, That those who do receive him, they don't receive him in ordinary ways. Those who have life in him, they don't receive that life in ordinary ways. But those who receive him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. So that those who believe in him, his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. If you're here today and you confess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a a miracle. You're a miracle. You're a demonstration of the power, of the resurrected power of God at work in the lives of His people. It's a miraculous thing. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Deafened in our understanding. Blinded in our eyes. Crippled in our way. And just like a Lazarus heard come forth, you sat among a people like this, or you sat across a, coffee, a table at a coffee shop, or you sat on a lap of your parents, or a friend in a dorm room, and life came. Because you confessed the name of Jesus, because you heard the gospel. That is a miraculous moment. The giver of life gave you life. God is working out his mission, revealing his son, and he gives life in that. The second point I want you to see here is that it's God who reveals God. It's not the preacher who reveals God. I'm a theologian. That means I study the Bible and try to capture what the Bible teaches, organize it in a certain way, so that other people can have their minds and their hearts formed by God's truth, that they may know Him and be a good students of Scripture. It's not the theologian who reveals God. It's God who reveals Him. Look with me in John chapter 1, verse 31 and 33. I don't know Him, 
But I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed. John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and, I rest, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. We don't really need another text to see that God reveals God, right? I didn't know him, John says. But I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed. John said, I'm not revealing him. I don't know him. I'm doing what God sent me to do in order that he might be revealed. But I did get this from God. I got this from God, that when the Spirit descends and rested upon him, this is the one. I got this from God. I'm going to be able to experience and testify and see the fulfillment of Isaiah 42, verse 1. Isaiah 42, verse 1 tells us that this, this servant of the Lord is going to come, and the Lord's going to strengthen him, and the Lord delights in him, and the Lord's going to put his Spirit upon him. See, it's God that reveals God. Maybe the best commentary of, in Scripture on this point and what we see here happening in this text is Jesus' interaction with Peter when he comes up and says, who do they say that I am? Well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. Some say you're John the Baptist and you come back from the dead. And Jesus says, but then who do you say that I am? And Jesus says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but you received that from my Father. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal, to this, do that, reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. I hear echoes here of the confession and the book of Jonah, in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is His work. As we've gathered together today, as you've organized, as you've prepared for the day, but this is His work. We're vessels doing what He's called us to do, but if He doesn't build the house to labor labors in vain. If God doesn't blow the wind of the Holy Spirit and the lives of His people, we won't live. We won't be alive. If He doesn't reveal Himself to us, we won't know Him. But look at look what John says here. I don't know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water told me the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on. He's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This raises a question for me. Why the dove? I mean, we're told in Isaiah 42 that the Spirit is going to rest upon him, but why the dove? As a symbol for the Holy Spirit resting upon him. I think there's at least maybe three reasons. And perhaps these reasons are not in conflict and they're all true. The first reason is, I think, it's because of the story of creation. The story of creation plays out in this enormous part in the prologue of John's gospel. And I think John here is still thinking and remembering about Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and the creation story. You'll remember in the beginning of the creation story that the earth was without form and is empty. And as God begins to mold it and shape it, he sends his spirit as a bird to hover over the waters. And as the one the voice crying out in the water, maybe he's proclaiming this, there's a new creation happening. There's a new restoration taking place. That the one who created in the first place has come now to recreate and to restore all things the way they're supposed to be. What a beautiful way to describe the Holy Spirit sitting upon the Messiah who's coming to make all things new. Or perhaps you remember the flood story. In the flood story, there was a dove. After 
days and days and days of being trapped in the boat and the rain stopped and the waters appear to be rescinding. Moses opens up the window, at least that's my mind, I, he opens up the window and the reason is because every time I've ever seen a picture of the ark, it's got a little window at the top and the dove's flying out, right? He opens up the window and he sends the, the dove out. The dove brings back a branch, a branch that has leaves, not to be missed. A branch, a branch that has leaves. And what does this symbolize? It symbolizes that the judgment of God has passed. The judgment of God has passed and new order is beginning. A salvation has come that Noah and his family have been carried through the waters. Or maybe this. There's another occasion in which the doves play a crucial role. When the poor Israelites couldn't afford a lamb or a goat, and they had to come to the temple to pay, to give a sacrifice for their sins. They would come to the temple in need to have their sins forgiven, and they would bring two turtle doves. And one of those doves would be sacrificed through the, through the sacrificial system. The other one would be let go. And the sacrifice is a reflection of the sins have been forgiven and peace with God has been established. I think John is saying all of these things. John says in verse 33, I didn't recognize him. But when the dove came, I saw him. Now I know this is the one who we've hoped for. This is the one we've longed for. This is the one we wanted salvation to come through. It is he. John didn't recognize him. Of course he knew him, right? This is his cousin. Come on, bro. Fist pump. Right? They were cousins. But, but he didn't recognize him in full. He didn't have the full significance of who he was until the dove rested upon him. This is the one, John is saying. This is the one who creation is going to be made new through. This is the one that peace with God is going to be established with. This is the one that judgment is going to be dealt with once and for all. Only God knows himself, and only God has the knowledge and the power to make himself known. And the good news is God wants you and I to know him, and he is at work to make himself known. This is why we place so much confidence in the Scriptures. The sufficiency and the truthfulness of the Scriptures is because the book that you have in your lap it's the Word of God for the people of God for all times and all places, and it comes through from Him. And because He alone has the ability to make Himself known to us, this book can make Him known to us. We don't, we're not merely seeing words and sentences that form concepts and ideas in our brains. When we gather around this Word, we're hearing the voice of God. And we hear the voice of God for a purpose, that you and I might be transformed by it. He's revealed to us in this book. And it reveals him because it is from him and because it is about him. This is why we celebrate the incarnation. John 1.18, no one has seen the Father except the Son. The Son, the one who is at the right hand the only begotten one. And he has come to make the Father known. And in his coming, in his life, he lived by the words that he taught, the deeds that he did, the death that he died, the resurrection that he experienced by the power of his own spirit, by his ascension, returning to the right hand of the Father, by him sending the Spirit upon the people of God to transform and empower us for the mission that he's called us to. This incarnate one has revealed the Father, and we celebrate him because he is God himself, and he makes God known to us. And when we know him, we have life. 
life. Not energy for the day. Not sustenance for the moment. Not encouragement or vision or hope or opportunity. Sometimes we define life in all of those terms, don't we? That we have life, life eternal, that can never be taken away. That He alone sustains, that He gives. That we will experience an ever increasing glory in this life, in communities like this, growing in your knowledge of Him, seeing Him work in the lives of other people, building up your faith ever-increasing glory until the day we see him face to face. And then the fullness of that life will be experienced in ways that are unimaginable and that we can't even articulate. But when we know him, we are being transformed in his likeness. This Jesus continues this ministry, making known the Father to us so that we might know him and that we may be transformed in his likeness. The end of John 17, this great high priestly prayer where Jesus prays really three things. He prays to the Father, I've fulfilled all that you've sent me to do. He prays for the disciples that God would hold them tight. And then he prays for you and for I, for for me and for you, so that we too may know him. And he promises this, that he will have an ongoing ministry of making the Father known to us until we are one as they are one and until the love for the Father to the Son is manifested in us. This one is continuing to work, even in our presence today, to make known the Father. Third point is this. If the Son is revealed, we are not. I think when at this point, we have to come to terms that there's a symbiotic relationship between these two points. It's the Son that's revealed, not us. There's a symbiotic relationship between this. God is, full stop, no caveat, No hedging. As sure as we're in this room and even more assured that we're in this room, God's going to fulfill his mission. He's going to do his will. He's going to accomplish his purposes. That's not the question. The question is, will he use us to do it or will we be a distraction from it? That's the question, right? The Son will be revealed. The Son is revealed, and we're not revealed. The question, though, is, will we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him so that He is known and not us? I think this principle is picked up well for us in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. You probably can just turn one page over from John chapter 1. It says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake into the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Or if you look just down a little further in the passage, John responds, responded, No one will receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. But he who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friends who stand by and listen for him and rejoice greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase and I must decrease. I believe this is the reason that this theme is consistently articulated throughout the Scriptures, communicated by James in James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives greater grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We see it in John himself in this text. Why do you baptize? John answers the question in verse 26 and 27. I baptize with water, John says, but there's one standing among you who you don't know. And he who, this one who comes after me, the straps of his sandals, I am not worthy to untie. This is the one when he's approached by the Jewish leaders and is asked, who are you? You remember. He was asked, who are you? 
And he simply said, nothing. And then he said, are you Elijah? He said, nope. Are you the prophet? Nope. It's interesting here. He never says, but let me tell you who I am. By the way, I have my resume right here. Let me tell you the things I've accomplished. Let me tell you about my mama and my daddy. He never does that. Are you, who are you? I'm not the Messiah. Are you the Elijah? Nope. Are you the prophet? Nope. The religious leaders, they want to make him a religious event. They bestow on him some sort of religious significance. But John has none of it. He refuses to have an identity in the discussion. Man, that's convicting. Our culture is writ large with a claim for identity, isn't it? And we can find some of the extreme examples of the issue of identity in our culture, but we all feel it all too close to home. This is a countercultural moment where John never, never feels the necessity to reveal who he is. Our cultural moment is about identity. It's about constructing identity. It's about deconstructing identity. It's a manifestation of a high sense of entitlement, but John has none of it. He wouldn't give in to their request. And the reason he wouldn't give in to their request? Because that wasn't his mission. If he gave in to the request, he would be at odds with his true sense of calling. He would make himself the object of interest, a person of independent standing, and thereby he would cease to be who he is. They ask, and finally, who are you? Give us an answer. Take back to who sent us. Verse 22. Who, what do you say about yourself? Verse 22. He replies, I'm a messenger. Just a herald. Just an ordinary mouthpiece. Verse 23 says, John replied to the words from the words of Isaiah the prophet. I'm the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John understands that you can't see the light unless the light is lifted up. And he says, I've just come to lift the light up. I'm holding forth the light. I'm not the light, but the light is here and he's among you and I'm just holding him forth. I'm holding him up. John's the speaker. He uses his voice not to say anything about himself, but to bear testimony to the one who is to come. You know what the crazy thing is? Only God reveals God, but he uses me and he uses you to reveal himself when we give witness to him according to his word. It's also an interesting observation to look at where he speaks. He doesn't speak from a platform like this. Not that there's anything particularly wrong with this, but he doesn't speak from a platform. Scriptures in the, the descriptions in the scriptures, he doesn't even dress up for it. I don't even think he takes a bath. Not a place of prestige or honor. It's not a stage or a platform. He's in the wilderness. Where is he? He's in the place of long and the painful history of the people of God. He's in exile. Out in the wilderness. The place associated with exile because of Israel's disobedience and hostility. The place of barrenness. The place associated with the pangs of childbirth. It's in this place that John serves his role. He's in the streets in the borough. Right? Nothing of prestige. Nothing fancy. He's out where people need to hear about the restoration power of God through the coming Messiah. That's where he is. John sets an example for us. But the question for me and the question for you is it 
Is there anything that stands in the way of you following his example? Is there anything that stands in the way of you following his example? To be a herald, be a mouthpiece. To never feel compelled to tell anybody who you are. Never put yourself in the place of honor or the front. Always a place of being a servant. Seeking other people to know him and not to know you. What might be some things that stand in the way? And as I reflect on that question in light of the Gospel of John, I kind of want to reverse engineer some possible answers. A couple of sort of places in the Gospel of John that tells us that what Jesus really wants from us, what Jesus really wants to see happen, and then if these things happen, how there can be power in our witness and power in our reflection of who he is and what he has done for us, I think of John 13, the washing of the disciples' feet. John 13, verse 12, Jesus washed their feet and he put on the outer garments and he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. You are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Or a reverse engineer from this passage, John chapter 13, verse 34, just a little further down in the chapter. He says there, They will know you are my disciples if you love one another. I give you a new command, love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Or reverse engineer from this place. They'll know you're my disciples if you are one. John 13, verse 23. I'm in them and you're in me so that they may be made completely one and the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them just as you have loved me. That's from John 17. What we see in these passages is a really important principle. Don't miss this. What we see in this passage is a really important principle. Who Jesus is for us determines how we respond to other people. In each of these examples, who Jesus is for the disciples is to determine how they are supposed to live their life together and to live their life in the world. Jesus is a servant to them. They're supposed to serve. Jesus loves them. They're to love. Jesus has made himself known to them to unite them in the knowledge of him. They're supposed to be one. Who Jesus is for us determines how we respond to other people. We must decrease. He must increase in the front of others. I once heard uh, a Christian leader describe as a man who is humble before the Lord. I had asked the question that it was, uh, with another Christian leader, and they were, had spent some time with this person, and I asked, tell me about them. Tell me about their character. And this was the response. He's a humble man before the Lord. And I'm not trying to be critical of him. I'm just using that discussion, that conversation as an illustration and a point of reflection. We can't be satisfied with merely being humble before the Lord and prideful in front of other people. The caveat before the Lord is not sufficient. We're not obeying the text. If He increases in our devotional life, if He increases in our private lives, if He increases in our thoughts about Him, but we increase in our relationship with other people. We're not being obedient to the text. What might keep him from increasing and us from decreasing? Perhaps it's tied up in the answers of these three questions. What is keeping you from serving others? What's keeping you from loving others? 
What's keeping you from experiencing unity with others? There may be an answer there. See, God reveals God, but he uses us. John chapter 1, verse 34, I have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God, John says. I've seen and I've testified. And after God reveals himself to John, John knows the Son and recognizes him. And a day later, he says this about Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now do you see what John the Baptist is saying to the Levites and the priests? With all their theological understanding or their traditions and all their symbols and all their structures and all their buildings, all of their concerns and the others, John is saying this. Here's the Lamb. Here's the Lamb. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I can't think of any more beautiful statement in all of written language. As I think about moments in history where I'd want to be, I think there's two. I think I'd like to be there where he ascended into the heavens with the disciples, and I think this is the second. Maybe this is the first. To hear the herald saying, look, there he is, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. There's not a more beautiful proclamation. There's not a greater message Tied up in that message is this. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. He's the one that's wounded for our transgressions. He's the one that's bruised for our iniquities. It was upon him that the chastisement of our sins was laid upon to bring us peace. John is saying this to you and to me, even as we're saying, even as he was saying this to the priests and the Levites. And the question is, do we hear it? Look, there he is, the lamb, the one who came to take away the sins of the world. He's saying this to you. This is the one, this Jesus the Nazareth, of Nazareth. He's the answer to the problems of our broken, our sinful heart, the problem of our wretched condition, the problem of our guilt, the problem of our soul. He is the one who takes it away. What a beautiful message. Do you see it? Do you hear it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the privilege of gathering around it with these, your, your, your people, your church. And I pray, Father, today that we've heard your voice and been reminded of these truths. May you write them on our hearts. And may you be, empower us with them. To join the ranks of John the Baptist, he must increase, we must decrease, and to be heralds of this great news that you have come to make yourself known through the revelation of your Son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's in his good name we pray. Amen.